Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Jennifer Briney. She's the creator and host of the wildly popular Congressional Dish podcast. It's kind of like C-SPAN meeting Comedy Central, resisting the corporate takeover of the world. She's incredibly informed on a host of issues. She reads the congressional record religiously, and she's one of the most informed, insightful commentators on political issues of the day that I've come across. I wanted to talk with her a little bit about net neutrality, something that is incredibly relevant to anybody who is listening to this podcast because you use the internet and use it with regularity is my guess. Before I begin my conversation, though, I want to tell you about something. It's a company called Effective Coffee. They're a nano roaster based in Portland, Oregon. What they do is primarily sell bags of coffee via a simple subscription model. They source seasonally fresh coffee from around the world, roast it fresh, and ship it fast. And it is fantastic. It's how I started my morning this morning. But lots of companies do that. What makes them different is that not only do they donate to the most effective causes on the planet, as judged by GiveWell.org, but also how much they donate varies according to how many subscribers they have. More subscribers equals a higher donation rate. Their goal is to donate up to 20% of their revenues every week to great charities and ones that impact the lives of the farmers that grow their coffee all around the developing world. This coffee is great. And if you're a coffee lover, I would recommend this coffee. It tastes fantastic. And as you're drinking it, enjoying it, you can have the satisfaction of knowing that in a small way, you're making the world a little bit of a better place. If you subscribe and when you buy it, Online at EffectiveCoffee.com. If you use the coupon code Give and Take, you'll receive 10% off your subscription for your entire life. That's a lifetime 10% off. You're never going to get a better deal on better coffee for a better cause. So please go to EffectiveCoffee.com, check out their product, and enter Give and Take in the coupon code field. And now I give you Jen Briney. Jen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Hey, no, I'm thrilled that you're on. And this is actually, I feel like, um, kind of self-interested why I contacted you. I was thinking about net neutrality stuff. And I kind of had, I, I think I probably had already formed my opinion. And then I was looking at other things. I was I was thinking, well, what's the case? Kind of, I don't, I don't hear, I, I often don't hear people putting forth the case against it. Uh, and then, you know, it's just a complicated issue. And then I started reading even some of the pro pieces. And I thought, gosh, this is a really complicated issue. The FCC's got a decision to make in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I've seen some John Oliver stuff, some other less comedically oriented stuff, but I just really have not dug into this that much, I think. And I think this is something that is going to affect everybody, right? <laughs> so of all the yeah. things we, we, oh. need, we need, you know, to talk about, I mean, this, everybody's, most people are, are, have some relationship to the internet. Yes, most people, not everyone, which I do think is a distinction here because... I mean, let's first acknowledge what net neutrality is talking about. It was a regulation in the FCC in 2015 that essentially says that the internet is a public utility, which is it? <laughs> you know, that's one of the first questions I keep asking myself, because when I think about a utility, I think the first thing we think about is the electricity. And that is something that every single person in our society needs. I'm sure there's one or two people that could camp 
<laughs> for a living, but I'm not one of them. Everybody needs when electricity. When I go camping, my camping for me is staying in a Marriott near the woods. <laughs> yeah, I like RVs, which still have electricity. So, yeah, electricity is essential. That's a public utility. But I went to see my grandparents this um, summer, and they don't have the internet, and they're functioning just fine. And there are plenty of people that don't have the internet. So as a millennial, I generally think that everybody needs to have the internet, and it's definitely, I'm a podcaster, so it's essential to my business. But is it an essential public utility? I don't know, because you can function in our society without the internet. You can do everything in cash. You can go to physical stores. You can go to the grocery store. You can work in a physical retail outlet. Um, so it's not as essential to our society as a true public utility. So that's just one place that we can start with this conversation, which is the big overarching, like how important is the internet? Could you argue that that's the story of everything that becomes a utility? Like there was a time when not everybody had electricity and you could function without it and some homes or, or, or indoor plumbing, right. And that kind of water system where, you know, there are always times when the in the transition of technology where it's not universal and then it becomes kind of a universal and i wonder if that's the story of the internet right now like yes it, it wasn't an essential now i mean i just read an article about how kids that have cell plan only or like cellular data only internet are really disadvantaged educationally because one of two things happens you either have a, a limited plan and you burn your data in like three days and it it, you know, it becomes a penalty or you have unlimited, but it's throttled. And so the, the performance. Yeah. So, I mean, is there an argument to be made that we it, we might need to start treating it like a utility? Because it's just for K through eight education in, in many places. I mean, this is we're, we're we are a more digitized world. We are. And I think you've kind of nailed the issue on the head, which is that this is something that is changing rapidly and has been changing for the last 20 years. Because I read through this morning, I went to the actual net neutrality regulation that they're changing. So uh, there was a. This a thing is why Jen Briney is week. on the podcast. Because you don't really like, oh, this is what National <laughs> Review says. Remember, well, I actually, I actually read the FCC's, what they're voting on. <laughs> Yeah. And they gave us, it's a really interesting thing to read the, the perspective of it. And the thing that kept jumping out at me is this whole argument with net neutrality is about a definition. What are the internet service providers providing? And there's two different definitions. One is they're either an information service. So that's how they were classified before 2015, or they're a broadband internet access service, which is what they became classified as in 2015. So the whole issue is about what we're going to call the internet service providers. But here's the fascinating part. Those two definitions were defined in 1996 in the Telecommunications Act. So we're, we're going off of a law that was written over 20 years ago by people that had no idea what the internet was going to come, become to our society. Because when I think about 1996, my dad was an early adopter of all computer technology, so I had a computer in my home, but most of the people I knew didn't. I remember going to an internet cafe, just this sad little hole with a bunch of my guy friends, so that they could play Counter-Strike in high school, and I would play Snood next to them. But that was necessary because they didn't all have internet in their homes. And as far as texting is concerned, that wasn't even a thing. Some of us had AOL Instant Messenger, but it was far from everybody. You know, that's where we were when this was all created. The internet was a far different thing. In fact, to get AOL Instant Messenger to work or even Prodigy, you were using your telephone lines to do so. So 
it was just a completely different beast. And now the cables are different and the way it operates are different and the way we use it is different. And we're operating off of these old laws. So I can tell you when I think about this issue, even back in 2015, 2014, I never wrote an email to the FCC. I never got all that fired up about it. I'm not all that upset about it right now because we're still dealing with an old law And what we're seeing right now is how they're interpreting that old law. The ultimate solution to this is to write a new law knowing what the internet is and what it's going to be in our society. But as far as the FCC changing the definition, I mean, as soon as we change the next administration, it can change right back. That's exactly what we saw happen. The Obama administration wanted it one way. We get the Trump administration and they flipped it over. That can happen when you're legislating via regulation instead with actu- instead of with actual laws. Yeah, and I think isn't so there are countries, right? My understanding is that certain countries like South Korea, a, a lot of countries do treat it a little more like a utility and the government was more involved in getting the infrastructure set up nationally. I don't know about other company uh, countries, but I know that ours helped create the internet. I mean, our taxes helped create the internet through the Department of Defense. So that is one area where people are like, keep the government out of the internet. And I'm like, you know what? The government invented it. My tax money invented it. So I don't quite understand why we're allowing Comcast and Verizon and these giant companies to control the future of it. So, I mean, that argument doesn't fall on deaf ears here. No, I, I don't know. Here's my like armchair history of the thing, as I understand it. It's like basically, yeah, the government did help develop the internet, but then and we kind of turned it over to the telecom companies to build the infrastructure in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, now I'm going to sound like a real hypocrite because right? I live in Pennsylvania and we you have to buy your liquor through the state liquor store, liquor and wine. Beer is another state regulated store. You can't sell beer at the same place you sell wine and spirits. And so, so, so dumb. So, well, and, I'm like, and, then, and the <laughs> argument for maintaining this is like, well, what will people in rural communities do? Well, they'll buy it at Walmart. Like everybody, you know, but so on one level, I kind of like free market, lazy, fairish things on some things. And other things, it seems like because we let them, the, the, private telecommunications companies sort of do the infrastructure. It, they went where there were the most people and were the most profit and certain things are less profitable. So like it, the story I've heard is that countries like South Korea and other countries, I think in the industrialized world have taken a more sort of in, integrated kind of government and private sector approach. And you look at the top 10 internet speeds. I just pulled them up. Where are they here? Um, we're not in the top 10. Like, no. like, like South Korea is one, Sweden two, then Norway, Japan, Netherlands, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Lat- Latvia, Finland, Denmark. So I wonder like if sort of going, if, if, if we're going in a model like that seems to me to be less in the direction of the world where all the fast speeds are. <laughs> it's that bad. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, treating internet like a public service has definitely helped the company or the countries that have done it. In fact, in the United States, the fastest internet speed last time I checked, which was maybe about six months ago, but last time I checked, it was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which has public internet as a citizen and a resident of Chattanooga, Tennessee, you get internet because they built out the cables themselves. They cut the telecoms out of it and their internet speed is fantastic. And it's funny that you bring in like the market issue here because we also have to look back at the law that we're now trying to interpret with these net neutrality rules. The 1996 Telecommunications Act said that the federal policy is to, quote, preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the Internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation, unquote. So the whole point of that law was to have this free market, let the companies do whatever they want to do system. And I think we and it's not just this issue, it's every issue at 
some point in this country, we need to decide, is this actually what we want? Do we want to have a country where the private companies are allowed to do whatever they want and make the rules? Or are we going to use the government, which is the collection of us, to make those rules and enforce them upon these private companies? And that particular law was, it says in the law that its goal was to reduce regulation. (laughs) You know, it was a free market ideological law. And that's what we're using right now to interpret what we're going to do with the internet. I just think it's an inappropriate piece of legislation to be asking these questions and to be using for this. I think we need to update the law. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's interesting that I was reading something that was in the Washington Post, um, or no, it was in the Pacific Standard Magazine, sorry, um, by a guy named Rick Paulus. And he talks about how in, um, in the eight years after the 96 Telecommunication Act, the cable companies spent like upwards of 65 billion laying down init- um, additional broadband networks that were able to provide multi-channel video, two-way voice, high-speed internet, everything, you know, that, that people that live on the interwebs love, right? And because of this initial investment in the infrastructure, the cable companies have had basically full control. So his argument is that the market was never really free as much as the people that were C were able to do so because they were in on the front end on the broadband stuff, right? After the the dial-up. And so only a few massive companies have been able to compete with one another because they 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 were the only people that had the resources to put the broadband infrastructure in. And so most of the competition have ended in a kind of stalemate where they just end up carving the marketplace block, you know, block by block or building by building. And you force residents to either choose one. For me here in Philly, it's it's basically Verizon or Comcast, right? Like they they control they control virtually if you want good Internet, high speed Internet like really good high speed internet, you have two choices. It's, it's, it's Yeah. And I actually only have one. I have Comcast if I want high speed. And if I just want to check emails, I can use AT&T. But if I want high speed, it has to be Comcast in, in my building because I live in an apartment complex and that's who they had put in their lines. So that's the problem with calling this a free market thing. It's not free market if you only have one option. So unless we're going to, and maybe this is an option for the update in the law that we know we have to do. But if we're going to do this free market thing, then we have to allow other companies to add wires into these types of buildings. But then uh, logistically, that gets ridiculous, too. What are we going to do? Wire each apartment with three different wires? And that requires tearing up the walls and tearing up the carpets. And there's just a lot of things about applying free market theory to the Internet that just don't work. Because what you end up with are these monopoly. They're not monopoly in that. You know, Verizon and Comcast do compete with each other, but not for my business. I don't really have a choice. Now, what does get interesting is that wireless is getting so fast that we do have AT&T and T-Mobile getting in the game. But these are still just mega giant companies. Um, I think that's the real issue we're going to have here is that if we have no rules on these companies and they have – what's the word I'm looking for? It's like um, – we're almost like prisoners. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we only have one choice. So it's like this company, Comcast in particular, can do whatever they want for me. And that's actually already happening when it comes to cable TV. So you know that I watch an enormous amount of C-SPAN. I'm a total nerd for it. And what Comcast has done to me, which I feel is incredibly unfair, is that in the basic package, they put C-SPAN 1 and C-SPAN 2. But in the next package... I have to pay $30 more a month to get C-SPAN 3. And that's the one with all the hearings on it. So it's like, that's the type of shit that I'm afraid of. If we allow them to do whatever they want, because we see them tricking us in just that kind of way with cable subscriptions. No, no the, the argument you know? against this, okay, th- th- let me play 
uh, I don't want to say devil's advocate advocate because that's literally demonizing the side. But uh, <laughs> but I but, but I, I, you know the the some uh, conservatives and they're mostly conservatives that would want the that would want to get rid of net neutrality and net neutrality meaning that, like when you buy internet service if you're streaming Netflix C C-SPAN's website uh, you know some kind of weird porn whatever you know uh, Hulu it all you know your World of Warcraft. You're not charged for, for based on what kind of data is coming through, right? So now the argument against net neutrality, like actually treating the data just as data, no matter what's on it, is that well, Netflix and Hulu and other you know, Google and stream, other Amazon streaming, they take up more broadband than if I just need email and you know regular text based with graphics websites and stuff like that. So really, the net neutrality law is to prop up Google, Facebook, Netflix, big companies so that they uh, don't sort of free ride off of these big telecom companies and pay their fair share. So the argument is, well, it'll really make our internet service cheaper because instead of spending $100 for super high speed internet or, or 200 for the highest speed. And, you know, like we pay, like I, th- I forget what we pay, but we have the highest I can get like the, cause I like you live on the internet. Like, so it's the 250 what megabytes per second, whatever the fastest. But their argument is if you could order a la carte, it would reduce your bill. But in the cable news and the cable TV thing, it seems like a la carte jacks up your prices. <laughs> cause they, you know, when you want good channels, yeah. you pay, you know, like you pay more. Well, and so much of what I've been watching right now in this debate is people guessing what's going to happen when the truth is we have absolutely no idea what the cable companies want to do with this, if anything. So that's another problem with this issue, too. Like, this isn't a law. When we talk about net neutrality, that is a name given to something that is quite complicated. Again, the the thing that I read this morning that the FCC put out, it's all about is this classified as an information service or a broadband internet access service? And there are repercussions in which one you call those. But all of these things that we're afraid of, that they're going to be able to say, you know, Netflix is this much. And I don't know. It's there's a lot of people guessing what the future is going to be. And one of the things that could also happen is absolutely nothing, because the ISPs, the Comcast, Verizon, those companies, they know just as well as I do that this is all being done by regulation. There is no net neutrality law. It's not a thing. And so that really does matter. The fact that this is a regulation, it can be switched so easily. So we don't know if they're going to act at all because right now, um, I don't have the numbers up in front of me, but I looked at it yesterday. There are, if you look at the people that are running for Congress in 2018, there are far more Democrats running than Republicans, far, far more. So we're talking an election that could change everything in less than a year. These ISPs know that. So if they do something immediately to make us all really, really angry, that's going to lead to a law. And it might not be a law that goes in their favor. So, you know, as far as predicting the future and what they're going to do is concerned, it's a really dangerous road to go down. And I've seen so much of the coverage go down that road where people are like, well, this is what they're going to do. They're going to make Netflix super expensive. I don't know about that. I mean, if I look at myself, if I, if I sit in the Comcast CEO's shoes, which I'm sure a thousand dollars, but if I sit there in his shoes, I can see the point of this guy over here, my, my grandmother, right? My grandmother wants to find out what the email is. 
because she can talk to me. And that's all. I, she I like how you say. put the definite arg- ar- ar- article in there. The email, like Howard Stern's Howard Stern's mother <laughs> calls the computer the machine. And look what your sister did. She took this photograph of my foot with the machine and somehow got it to my doc. I mean, the machine. Why don't you get the machine? I don't need the machine. <laughs> Yeah. They're like so cute and they just don't even understand the basics. You know, my grandfather just passed away and I've been doing this for five years. And up until the day he died, he kept telling me, Jennifer, you'd be so good at radio. I'm like, well, grandpa, I kind of do radio. It's on the internet. It actually goes out to the whole world. And he's like, but I can't find you on the dial. And right, like, right, okay. right, right. Well, you're never going to know that, <laughs> you know. So yeah, there's a whole generation that even if they get onto the internet, they're using the most basic. And then there's people like me that I watch Netflix and I'm, I'm using the internet for my television now. I'm using it to send massive files back and forth and downloading C-SPAN hearings that are 12 hours long. I'm using a massive amount of data that grandma is not. So should we be charged the same? So I mean, I think this is just a bigger conversation than the 1996 Telecommunications Act can possibly solve. They didn't know what the internet was back then. And that 1996, right? I mean, this is when we're moving from dial-up to broadband. And so before that, we had the ALI. And the thing makes all that weird, like, fax noise music over your phone. And, yeah. you're, you know, my, like my uh, wife would say, you know, uh, you know, people get, you know, her siblings are pissed because... Her brother's on the internet and somebody wants to make a phone call and we can't make a phone call while we're online and all this stuff. And so for moving from that, which you could see the internet because it was slower, it was through the phone companies, it, 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 it was a different kind of animal than what it is now. And what you're, seems what you're saying is there was this shift from Title I to Title II, right, where basically uh, Verizon wanted, it wanted the internet regulated differently. Uh, and they sued or whatever, and they switched it over from Title One, I think, to Title Two, which allowed Title Two kind of allowed the FCC some more to to keep net neutrality stuff and treat data as data neutrally or whatever. Uh, and that that's an issue here, right? What you're saying, I think, is that the whole thing is antiquated, like yeah. the whole the antiquated rather. The whole thing is antiquated, and we're just tweaking around an antiquated like framework instead of saying what should the internet be now. Exactly. Because, and one of the things that we have to keep in mind again is that they're trying the, the regulation that they're, that they tried to put in in 2015 that's getting overturned. It essentially calls the internet a utility like the phone lines, but the phone lines in the internet, what we get from Comcast is so different from what we get with a, a classic landline that we were using in 1996 to get our internet. It's do you very, have a, do you different. have a landline in your home? Not anymore. No. Yeah, I, I, we to. don't. My wife and I don't. We don't have a landline. I mean, yeah, and that's what we like. You said to get the internet in 1996, you were using that phone line. And so when you think about the free market that they were legislating in 1996, that was to put those new broadband lines in. So now that infrastructure is already in, and we're talking about what can be done with those lines. But they didn't even imagine what could be done with those lines. It was just a different, faster speed thing. So it's just a different product now than it was. Was back then. And to call it a utility like a landline, it's just so disingenuous because the internet service providers do more than just put in a line. They do manage data for us in a way that if they were just doing the lines wouldn't work. So for instance, like what I have a website, Congressional Dish, that 
is run on a completely different server. Really what's getting sent back and forth are zeros and ones. And in that process, it gets turned into the thing that looks like the website and has words you can read and looks like something that's useful. If all the internet service providers did for us was the line, we would get nothing but zeros and ones. They do turn it into manageable packets for us. They do um, catch it. So for popular websites, they will store on their servers the things that get hit over and over and over again so that we get served faster. If they did not provide that service, then the internet would not be nearly as efficient as it is today. So to say that all they do are the lines and then they don't touch it in between is actually not true. And that's one of the things that they were saying in this FCC thing, which, you know, the FCC, we also have to look at the guy in charge of it was a Verizon executive. (laughs) Like there's definitely things going on behind the scenes, but I can see their point of view where they're like, we are not just providing landlines. You know, we're doing more than that. We are providing data. There is a massive distribution, especially now with um, live gaming. People that do live gaming, they use incredible amounts of data. And so there is a giant difference between what you get. I mean, yeah, speeds are different, but the amount of data that some people are consuming compared to others, it does affect other people. Like in an apartment complex, I know that when school gets out, my internet's going to get slower because the kid downstairs is constantly gaming with the kid around the corner, also in my building. And so when more people get home, my internet gets crushed. That's just how it is. And what, serve, and so, what kind of service do you use? Um, I have Comcast. So I think, I don't know which is which, but yeah, cause there's cable and then Fios that I think Verizon is, is the, fi, the oh, fiber optic. Oh, I miss Fios. Yeah, because I used to have it. I think in one of them, I'm not sure which is which, right? But on one of the systems, your speed is determined by how many people on your block are using it at the time in your little server. And then the other one, it's actually determined by how close you are to the hub. So yeah, if, if, if everybody, switch. I think it's how it works. If everybody's close to the hub, it doesn't matter if everybody's gaming, but if you're further out from the hub, so you get more hubs. Whereas the Comcast, it's like, it's like if, if you live on, you want to be on a block with lots of old, like old people. Like, thank goodness my wife had, there's this, yeah. there's this little, <laughs> there's this little middle school, like bike gang, like in our little town, like, you know, they, Red Side Philly, they ride their bikes. My wife calls them the wheelie boys because they sit around pop wheelies. But thank God I have wheelie boys and not uh, a tour of a call of duty boys. <laughs> I think I'm for bikes. Uh, I'm for kids riding bikes so I can sit inside and be an internet geek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But Call of Duty boys, they suck up a lot of data. Yeah. So I just, I, is it fair to require that these companies allow the Call of Duty boys to use that much data when the person next door is getting charged the same exact thing? So I don't know. There's this, um, here's just a quote from, uh, a woman named Susan Crawford, who from a book called Captive Audience, The Telecom Interest, Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age. She says this. She goes back to the history of the electrical companies. So private electrical companies consolidated, wielded enormous influence in state and national legislatures, cherry-picked their markets, and mounted huge campaigns against publicly owned electrical utilities, calling them un-American. Uh, at, at the beginning of the 20th century, private power companies electrified only the most lucrative population centers and ignored most of America, particularly rural America. Predictably, the private utilities claimed that the public ownership of electrical utilities was costly and dangerous and always a failure. 
And so it ended in the middle of the 20th century when electricity was basically considered a natural monopoly, meaning the high barrier, the cost of entry, you can't just pull together money and construct a power plant, right, with transmission wires, meant that it didn't make sense for competitors to invest anything in the business. So other things like public water and garbage collection wind up working the same way. You know, it's some, somehow it's only like a publicly owned company. Uh, it's good enough for each district to handle its own business is kind of the argument. You know, there are hundreds of electrical companies in the U.S., in the US but they, they each service a relatively small chunk of the country. Um, and, yeah. and many argue that this is the way we should look at the internet. Well, yeah. And I look at, I mean, that's exactly where we're headed right now by letting these private companies control the internet. Because right now, like for instance, I can only get my electricity from PG&E. PG&E here in the Bay Area has literally blown up a neighborhood. They didn't know where their gas lines were. It blew up San Bruno, killed a bunch of people. And then we had these giant fires in Napa and this isn't proven yet, but it appears that they weren't maintaining the lines well enough so that when we got winds that were not hurricane speed, they were supposed to be able to handle hurricane speed winds, which is 75 miles per hour. I've checked and I don't even think we got gusts that big, but their wires came down and it appears that that's what started the fire. That is what is being reported. Not entirely sure yet. But the point is, what else are we supposed to do? What other company can we go to to get our electricity from? We can't. We've allowed these private companies to take over something so important. And now that we have different technologies that we want to employ that don't require fossil fuels like solar and wind, my husband is a solar power industry. He spends so much of his time fighting these private companies because they see that as a you know, distributed <laughs> generation, that is a huge threat to their business model, which is like, you can only get your power from me, but if you're able to get it from a solar panel and get it into a battery, so they're fighting to change the laws to make that simple thing illegal. So, I mean, yeah, that's it's so what funny too, like on a, allow... on a different thing. I, I don't mean to quick. I just want to say, no, it's fine. So first of all, I, everybody should listen to your podcast on Scott Pruitt and who's the interior secretary? Uh, Oh, Ryan, Ryan Zinke. Zinke, right? The guy. I did lose my mind a that, little bit. That, in that, that podcast was so fantastic. <laughs> but as you were talking, it reminded me of that and all the all the energy and the you that, that podcast. You go, you actually drop in. You have drop ins of the actual hearings, and then you talk about well, this senator is bankrolled by this power company. This, but it's so interesting because the argument is like, well, you know, uh, the Obama administration subsidizing solar power is picking winners and losers we subsidize the oil industry but we've we've chosen the winner like it's not like, like the, it's funny that the argument is con is so contrary to reality that that yeah. that actually we have picked the winners here in the telecom industry right like we've already picked them and and they're incredibly subsidized yeah and and you're powerless to do yeah and and you're saying even the these electrical companies which are public utilities but still and regulated we have a tough time sometimes getting them to innovate and update and they're publicly regulated. <laughs> so, and yeah. We're and so what we're trying to do now or not we, but the free marketeers are trying to do now is allow the telecoms to control the future like the electrics utilities would love to do. But we've decided with electricity that regulation is a good thing. I think at this point we need to decide if it's also a good thing with the Internet. Again, this all goes back to 1996. We keep focusing on the regulation, but it all goes back to that old law, which was really about building the lines. Now that that's done, this is a completely different issue. Now we need to talk about who gets control over what goes over that lines to whom and how much it's going to cost. And that really, as far as I know, wasn't really addressed. And so that's why we're seeing the FCC really making laws when that's not their place in our system. This is Congress's place, which brings us to do we trust these people in the 115th Congress? 
My answer is no, no, no. Like these people right now are insane. So right now, the best thing I think that can happen to us is absolutely nothing. The FCC is going to overturn the regulation. Fine. We need a new Congress before this new internet law is created. But right now, I mean, this FCC thing, it's going to keep happening. It's going to flip-flop. They're going to redefine stuff. And this is how it's going to happen until we get something that's actual law to update something that was written in 1990. And for like the next six years, at least, the Congress just have to be all women and just clean things up a little bit. Like, I'm going to say all these discrimination cases. It's just amazing that these Congress, the, the way you deal with sexual harassment is, well, if you're, if you're a victim, you have to go to counseling, pay for your own lawyer. The congressman gets the yeah. government lawyer. And then if you get a settlement, you have to have a non-disclosure agreement and the taxpayer pays the settlement. I'm like, all right, we just, this is just, guys have set up a system where it's like, it's equivalent of like a strip club or something. I mean, it's just the regular, it's, it's it, this, if you want to behave badly, go to Congress and, and, and the taxpayers will pay for it. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. It's certainly an old boys club up there, but at the same time, vaginas don't give you some kind of legislative superpower. This is true. This <laughs> so. is true. This is true. Uh, but it, it would stop some, yeah. a, a group of mostly women probably wouldn't have that policy, but, but, uh, that is true. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So it's really interesting because you live in California, right? I do. 43% of rural California residents have no broadband access, right? It doesn't and surprise me, yeah. It doesn't, there's no incentive for the companies to do anything about that because those people already pay 50 to $80 a month for substandard kind of old school internet because uh, their only option is cutting the cord entirely or having mm-hmm. the kind of shitty internet that the broadband company can make a, a, a pretty nice profit off of and not doing anything except bleed those people out. I mean, so that seems to me like where the, the market, and I think this is, I mean, what you're saying to me, now tell me if, I'm, if, if, if this sounds right. It was different when the, the internet came into our life, our public life, like in the 90s, right? Like, because it was a strange portal into this kind of other hidden world, your prodigy, your AOL, your, the, you know, there was an entry point, right? A PC computer screen. You need a dial-up modem. You can't use there's so you can't use your phone while you're using it. So there's a distinction by bet- between being online and offline, right? A clear one, mm-hmm. like okay, I'm going to go online now, right? Like nobody says that stuff stuff like that anymore because the this now because of the smartphone and wireless and you know like and and you know it, it, hotspots or anything. If you don't have the internet at home, you're not just missing out on 
connecting in this with peers and you know being in, involved in digital culture you lose the ability to bank work and do homework from home <laughs> like i mean it's it's there's there there are real disadvantages now again if you if you're if it's your grandparents who they just want to send some emails or whatever but more, the more and more you're in life that is connected to a digital economy it, it seems like that, that that's it's just really different when the internet was introduced you didn't yeah. need to have the internet to be a banker or a teacher it, 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 it you can't imagine in many professions not having high-speed internet because you just do so much stuff at home even for work well, I mean, the importance can't be overstated. It's definitely far more important in our society than it was 21 years ago when the law was made. Um, I think what we're seeing now, though, is so much rapid change. I mean, even even as I speak, I just got something in the mail yesterday from Comcast, which is offering me a deal for my mobile phone. So now Comcast not only wants to have my cable, my internet, but they also want to have my phone plan. I'm currently on AT&T. And when I was in Mexico last week, I had... It's a long story and it's boring and stupid, but I had to update my plan while I was there in order to make a phone call. And what we found out is that we now have unlimited data, which we didn't before. We're paying $40 less a month to have it. And HBO was included, which I do not understand why. <laughs> you know, like how did AT&T and HBO become the same thing? And apparently if I watch HBO, it might not count towards my data. Like I still don't get it, but there's a partnership there. So we're seeing these giant companies that are media and cable and phone and they're all merging and doing this weird stuff and it's happening so rapidly that even if i think we made a law right now we're still not prepared for whatever they're trying to do behind the scenes there we don't know exactly what they're envisioning i think they're experimenting on what they can do it's just it's a moment of rapid change and so to say that this regulation is the end all be all of anything it's just not it's all changing so fast right now that i don't i don't really know how to get my head around it and i don't know if Anybody can. It's so fast, this technological change. What? Yeah, that which I know is a cop-out just to be like, I don't know. But I think there's a lot of people right now pretending that they know the answer, knowing that whatever the FCC decides to do on December 14th, they know that this is the end of the internet as we know it. That's getting a little ridiculous, you know, because these companies have no incentive to destroy the internet. You know, it's just, it's going a little far. I think we all need to take a breath and go, this is all happening very fast. And as long as we are governing using a 1996 law, it's not going to make much I, I, sense. True confession. I mean, this is one of the reasons I reached out to yesterday is I was, you know, I was sort of, I cut and pasted something somebody said to send to your FCC representative because I tend to, I watch a lot of John Oliver and, you know, I listen to a lot of NPR and, and generally it, those kinds of news outlets. I mean, I watch a lot of Fox News too because I try to consume wide media, but I, I, so my views on net neutrality, I would say, where I, I, I think it's a good thing that we have net neutrality and kind of reflexively, you know, and, but I thought, well, maybe I should do a podcast conversation because it's timely. And as I, I started, the first, one of the first pieces I was reading was a pro net neutrality piece in Tech Junkie. And I'm like, this is like for the position I think I hold in its complex as I'm reading it, like this is really technical. And I'm, I feel like a reasonably intelligent person. And I, I texted a prominent conservative writer, a national guy. He's on, you know, Meet the Press. He's been on Bill Maher. He's a great guy. And I said, you know, do you, wow. I mean, I know your publication kind of is, is anti-net neutrality. Should, is that, should that be, honestly, should that be my position? Whatever? And he texts me back. Like, I haven't really thought that much about it, quite honestly. I text him back. Neither have I. <laughs> so, so, and I, yeah. I live on the internet. Right. Like, I mean, we're both podcasters. And I mean, when I'm editing a podcast, I'm often, there's a, a bit, our big TV is next to me in, in our library kind of room. 
And so when I'm editing, I'll watch news on my laptop <laughs> or on my, on my uh, iPad while I'm on my desktop uploading files. So yeah, I mean, this is, it's just interesting to me that like even someone like me who's so connected to broadband, I couldn't live the kind of life right now I'm living without it just because it's part of, it, it shapes the culture. I don't think about these policies. <laughs> Like, and it's, and I think there's not, it's the same thing. Yeah. I had a guy on the podcast recently wrote this fantastic book about gambling, right? He's a San Diego Tribune editor. And I said, you know, this is such a great book. And it's 48 of 50 states have legalized gambling and governors love it because the book is called From Gangsters to Governors because like the guy, the gangsters used to rent. Now the governors do. And the governors make more of a skim than the gangsters used to do. It's like they love it because they don't like taxes. They, they're raising taxes. So it's an invisible tax often disproportionately on poor people. But I'm like, this is something that is so tied to our public life, this gambling stuff. And I ne you never hear it brought up in debates unless it's, we don't want the casino in our neighborhood. We want it, but put it in the neighborhood next door so we can go, but it's not in our, you know, the parking lot's not in my yard. That's the only thing. And, and it really does have massive effects on how we fund our public life. Same thing with the internet. I feel like just the, what you're bringing to light is this inadequacy of the whole framework of the discussion. And we're, we're, we're kind of haggling over an, an you know, an antiquated framework, right? We are. We're also haggling over a term, net neutrality, that no one knows what the fuck that means. <laughs> you know, no one knows what the regulation actually is until I opened up the regulation and read 75 pages of it this morning. Like, I didn't really know what we were arguing about. So the fact that people are like, net neutrality is this or it is that. And this is the rep repercussions. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. No one really does. You're talking about an old law and how it's being interpreted. I think what we really need to do at this point, especially as people that live on the internet and it's super important to us and our business, we need to discuss what we want and what's fair. You know, you brought up real, um, rural California not having the internet. I experienced that on Easter because my brother... He lives in Visalia, which is, he basically lives in a cornfield. And I had to upload my, my episode from his house. And after, like, usually when I upload my episode, it takes about 30 seconds here at home. After four hours of trying to get the thing to upload using his internet, I ended up using my, my phone. So I just turned it off and I used the LTE and I tethered it. And then it took about half an hour. So my phone was far faster than his internet. And so we got into this whole conversation about it. I'm like, what is going on here? And he's like, I live in a field. No one wants to pay to bring me the wire. And so that is when you talk about like free market, like the company, like you said, has no incentive to bring it out to them which is where I look at it like maybe it should be a public utility, which means that the government can put the wire in. And if we want to allow different companies access to the wire to manage the communications, like, okay. Because in that case, if the government controls the actual wire, maybe we could have competition between Comcast, Verizon, companies that we invent tomorrow. But it's all about the wires right now. If we allow them to own the wires as they do and control the content that goes over it, maybe that's part of the problem. I don't even know if this thing I just said, like, I don't even know if that's possible because I don't know anything about tech. But the point is we need to figure out what's important when it comes down to the internet. What do we want to protect um, legally? What do we need to have? And what can be left up to the gods of competition? And that's not the conversation that most people are having right now. They're all arguing about net neutrality this one regulation, which honestly, 20 years from now is going to be irrelevant anyway. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you 
when you were talking about that the data thing and and your the the experience with your brother like I, I listen to this podcast um bill crystal is he's um one of the editors i think former editors of the weekly standard maybe still oh is. yeah he's a warmonger but he hates trump he's fascinating right now he, oh and i love it's funny he tweeted out the other day and i retweeted it, it was great he's like he's like um you know uh the uh the tax uh proposals will bring out my inner socialist the sex scandals uh, trump and roy moore bring out my inner or, or, or the harassment's bringing out my inner feminist the uh trump and roy moore or trump is bringing out my inner liberal What's happening to me? Because <laughs> he's this old, <laughs> old guy that's kind of like, but he has this great podcast called Conversations. And yeah, his most recent guest was um, Kristen Soltis Anderson, who's a millennial pollster. And she's fantastic. And I mean, she just a very smart person. She's saying that Obama was asked on this MTV forum by someone like millennials, our dreams are, are some of our heroes are like Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg, like these digital entrepreneurs, you know, people. That, and what have you done to make this, these dreams possible for us as president? And she's like, what the heck? Wow. He's, he's going to, I don't know what he's going to say. And she's like, his answer was fantastic. She said, you know, he said, well, we had a bipartisan bill actually got more Republicans and Democrats that chain deregulated some financial stuff so that you could get capital through Kickstarter as an entrepreneur. Like they changed the capital rules so that you could crowdsource not just nonprofit and art stuff, but as as a as an entrepreneur and, and get capital. Yeah, I remember that, that. And she's like, I was like, that's fantastic. Why don't more Republicans talk like that? That's market-based efficiency. But you think about like that is, I mean, the best entrepreneurial thing, one of the best is online businesses, right? Which yeah. by nature, if you are in these rural areas or that you cannot do it, right? So are we saying yeah. everybody has to move to metropolitan, like urban? Well, centers? again, I went to my brother's house wasn't able to use his broadband to upload my show, but I was able to do it through my phone. Right. And that's relatively new too, where it's like now I have unlimited data on my phone. I have unlimited data at home, but the phone thing is brand new for me. And the fact that it was faster than the broadband, like, are we getting to the point now where even the broadband might be obsolete in 10 well, years? Well, it's not faster than the good broadband, but it's, but the crap it's better one. than the But one of two things happens on unlimited data. One, either you don't have unlimited data and you have like a very limited amount of data. And once you go over it, you pay an exorbitant amount of money or you have unlimited data. Once you go over a certain thing, you're throttled. So you're yeah. down to five megabytes per second. So so that's why, again, people say that pe like a, a lot of in urban uh, centers and and other rural centers sometimes people have the sort of internet only LTE but you couldn't run a functional internet business or something from an LTE connection like it's But right now we're doing a 1996 thing where right. we're saying well you can't do that now but back in 1996 I had to sign on on my phone line to even do a text so it's like when you think about the technology, are we going to get to the point where it's like, well, I don't need the line anymore. I just have it through my phone and I use my phone to get my computer and my TV to work. Like we don't know where That's this true. is going. You're, you're absolutely right. That is, that is true. We don't. And I, I feel like it, 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 it's interesting. There was this, um, you know, Dan Carlin's podcast. Um, yeah, yes, I adore uh, him. Common Sense. You know, he, uh, he was, I think it was, on, or maybe it was Hardcore History. One of them, he had this futurist on and this brilliant British guy who's like just a, he's like and he said, well, here's the problem, the climate change argument. He said, what really the argument we need to figure out is if we need to get all the best minds in the world to work on nanotechnology for 10 years, because if we then we'll know probably he would guess the end of 10 years, whether what Star Trek says is 
true could be true, that we can get nano replication so that people could live anywhere they want. You could live in the middle of a desert and have a town with lattes and swimming pools and internet because the nano things could instantly could, could replicate things much faster. He says, if we could figure that out, then we'd know that we could sort of dis- do resource distribution in a different way, which would solve a lot of these major climate and resource problems. He's like, if we can't, then we know, wow, we got to radically think. But but it was such a meta kind of analysis of like, well, here's the real problem that if we know the answer to it would solve all these other problems. But we, it's generally, we can't, well, first of all, if you, if you get into government, right. I've heard Carlin say this too. He's like, my grandmother was great at fundraising, like the rotary and this, she was great. You know, I don't know that I'd want her making decisions about where we're sending troops or, 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 mm-hmm. or entitlement fund, but she was good. But now he said, if you run for a local town council or, or mayor or something, the first thing you're going to ask you, what's your fundraising skills like? And the way you get up yeah. higher in the system generally is not because you're a great policy person. It's you're a great fundraiser. And maybe mm-hmm. on the side, you also have some political sensibilities or something, but that's the, the better. So the, the, the people that get most advanced in the system, right, are the people that are good at dialing for dollars. And who likes to, and they don't yes. even like doing it, a lot of them, but they just, they have a knack for it. So it doesn't seem like you're going to get really complex policy analysis from people that have to spend most of their day kind of charming dollars out of people at cocktail parties and kind of cuddling up to big money interests, right? Well, yeah. And that's the way, that's the problem that I'm seeing right now. It's like, if we're going to have this law that governs the internet, do I want these people writing it? Because where are you going to go if you need to raise money? Are you going to go to your poor friend or your rich friend? And if you look at CEOs of companies like, for example, Verizon, Comcast, AT&T, like those might be people that have more money than the average bear. And so those are the people that are getting hit up for funds. And they're, it might not be an overt quid pro quo, but it's there. If this person is giving you hundreds of thousands of dollars so that you can go and make laws, you don't think that there's going to be some laws maybe made in your favor. And so right now, what I'm witnessing in this Congress, this is the worst Congress I've seen by far. They are so owned by big business. It's it's horrendous what I'm witnessing. So I don't want hey, them well, well, Hey, this. look, hey, look, hey. That's why we're going to send Roy Moore there to clean it up. He's going to clean up wash, <laughs> drain the swamp, Roy yeah. Moore. <laughs> but, you know, before you recognize that you have a problem, sometimes you have to hit rock bottom. Maybe this is it. Maybe uh, this, this is, is it. This is true. I, there was a guy, on, uh, there, Stern was playing this excerpt from a conservative talk radio host, a small audience one. I didn't recognize the guy. But he said, look, Roy Moore went to West Point and served in Vietnam. When he came back, all the women of his generation were married. So he had to date teenagers. And he asked, he said he asked their mom. I'm like, Wow. This is like Orwellian. What what is happening? What am I hearing? Yeah, they'll defend anything. It's we're we're living through crazy why, times. Why, why, crazy times. Why do you why do you think that? And one of the things I appreciate about you and your podcast is you're not an ideologue. I mean, like you, you really strike me as someone that's that that's not ideological. You just you look at policies and you ask open ended questions. And and so why is someone that's I feel like one of the last true open minds. Why do you think this Congress is so bad? Like, what about it specifically? As someone who reads the records, looks at C-SPAN all day, tell me why it's the The corporatism. Hands down, the corporatism. And it's it's uniform across the Republican Party. They are functioning on behalf of of big business. You're seeing it right now. They don't give a shit about the deficit. It's like, but it's also the Democrats. So, for instance, before... we started talking, I was researching for my next episode. And one of the things I need to talk about is that our government needs to be funded by December 8th. And they're like not working on it. It's very strange. But when you look at the numbers, there are budget caps and 
that are in place that they want to blow up so that they can increase our defense spending or war spending to $600 billion. The Democrats on the other side are saying, okay, you can go ahead and do that, but we want a dollar for dollar match on the non-defense side. So there's no one arguing on behalf of fiscal responsibility. And and yeah, so it's just, there's no... I'm just so frustrated with the whole thing because the reason that they want to increase all this spending is that it goes out to all of these companies that they're contracting with. And, you know, it's just so frustrating to watch. And I lost my train of thought there for a second. And I really <laughs> apologize. Oh, no, you were saying that this is why this, they're the worst. This is why this is kind of, it's, it's they're, they're all the corporate yeah, makes it singularly It's bad. the corporatism. Oh, yeah. And so when I'm watching this, like there's, they're trying to deregulate on behalf of the big banks because the big banks have never made more in profit than they've made in the last year. And so, of course, President Trump is saying that they're devastated. And the Republicans who function on behalf of big business are trying to deregulate. They're probably going to attach a bunch of that deregulation to this government funding law. And the Democrats, such as uh, Warner of Virginia and Barney Frank of the Dodd-Frank law, are helping them. Barney Frank isn't even in Congress anymore. And he's still just like arguing on behalf of the big banks, like we need to help them with this regulation. It's the most frustrating thing in the world to see that individuals on different issues, especially in the Democratic Party, they each have their issue that they've sold their soul on, you know? So it's like, I don't know who's our ally in there anymore. I really don't. It's just as someone who earns a paycheck for a living, I always identify with workers because that is who I am. I'm not the CEO of like a giant multinational. I don't make my money through the stock market. I make it through working. That's who I identify with. The laws are being written on behalf of the people that make their money through dividends, through gambling on the stock market, through owning these giant companies. And I'm the worker bee. I'm the labor cost. You know, I am the one whose paycheck needs to remain low so that their labor costs are low, so that their profits are higher and they get more checks cut to them through the stock market. Isn't this why, I mean, this just seems really obvious to me, but maybe it's not me or me. And I'm biased. I have my own opinions and things, but it seems like, like when you give, tax cuts to middle class and working class people on what do they they spend it right i mean because they need so it goes right back into the pizza yes. shop new sneakers a better phone like they don't or maybe they pay down some debt um, but oftentimes it's consumed right yes. so the money goes when you give all this to people at the at the top 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 the 1% they you can only consume so much like i can't eat seven steak dinners a day i can't buy 17 lamborghinis i can't like like you can't i mean assets are different than consumer goods right yeah. even a car is an asset i mean cons- and really consumer goods are what stimulates the economy so you that's why it seems like the, these since the 80s that the sort of well lower tax cuts on on wealthy people and do this it, income inequality continues to 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 spike like and basically everybody's wages adjust for inflation are stagnated everybody's income except the wealthy like yeah. which continue to do better and better and people want them to you know our tax policy looks like it's it's just a big uh gift to people that have been given the big gifts already. it is and you you brought me back on track so where i was going with the government funding they want to increase it both war spending and non-war spending while at the same time cutting taxes for the rich. So it's like, who's going to end up paying for this? Me! (laughs) You know, we're going to end up paying more in sales taxes because the taxes are not coming from the federal government to the states. It's going to hit us in all these different ways for those of us that are workers. Workers are just getting screwed in every single way. The last time we talked, we talked about the the health law that they were trying to create and have failed so far, but we still have another year. 
That was 100% designed to help insurance companies and big businesses. And it was a way, it was all ideological, but when you looked at what they were trying to do, they were trying to make it so that these companies could make more money. You know, they wanted to free up the insurance companies to make their own rules so they could collect more in premiums and pay less out. At the end of the day, that's what they're trying to do. And so just every issue I look at, it's all on behalf of CEOs and the owners of companies and it's the workers who pay. And I have never seen it as extreme as I'm seeing it now. So that's why I'm saying this Congress. And this is what's fascinating about you. You're not a lefty, right? Like I I remember our last, I I remember our last conversation. I asked you, who do you think are the, cause I mean, you, you consistently point out who are sort of the, some of the worst Congress members of Congress in both houses. But I asked you who you thought was one of the best. And your first answer was Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And some of that was, as I recall our conversation, was, was because on this, he's not bought and paid for by corporations, right? Like he really, and he got 21% of the Republican votes in Vermont. Wow. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's what's impressive about the guy. I mean, that's a lot. And in a sort of blue state, red state, partisan tribal age, when you get 21% of Republican, registered Republicans as an independent socialist, you got to be doing something right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think that tribalism starting to crack. I think the only place I'm really experiencing the hard tribalism is when I turn on C-SPAN and I turn on the cable news. But in my day-to-day life, there is no one that I've ever met that fits perfectly into the two boxes we're supposed to fit into. And I'm a perfect example of that. There are so many people that try to label me that happens all the time. They're like, so what exactly are you? And I'm like, I'm an American. That's as far as I'm going to go with this conversation because you can't put, there's just too many issues. And even like this internet thing, it's too complicated to be like, well, I'm on the right. So I say this, or I'm on the left. Like it's just, it's not a healthy thing for us to do as a country. And the thing that gives me hope is that when I have conversations with like the one we're having right now or out in the bar, it is very easy for me to find common ground with just about everyone Yeah, because there's something we can agree on. We can start there, you know? So I'm hoping that we've hit bottom here. Um, I know a lot of people are starting to just turn off the news media as for as sources of information. I mean, I watch it more for like what's being said right now, what stories are they covering more as like a media analysis, but I don't use them for my news anymore. I use a, you know, I just read stuff. And I think a lot of people are starting to do that. There's a, with the internet, just like with the internet itself, it's a rapid transformation, but the information transfer that it has awakened is also a rapid transformation. So it's a lot for us to deal with. Um, We're going through some growing pains for sure. But I think at the end of this, maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, we'll have a better idea on how to handle all the information we're getting. And we'll have a better idea on how to vote for people. Because had you said 20 years ago that all these congressmen are bribed, people would roll their eyes. Now it's just, it's so obvious. Yeah. Now we just assume, we just want to know who you're bribed by. Like I'll vote yeah, for you. Just tell me who's bribing you, and then I'll, that that then I can be an educated voter. <laughs> exactly, and with the internet, we're now able to get that information because it used to be that you had to go if they had lobbying reports at all. I'm not entirely sure, but if they had them, you had to go to Washington D.C. to get them and go to some file with the Dewey Decimal System to find it. Now I can find it all online, and I can watch all these hearings online, and I can provide clips for people online, and it's so much easier for us to gather the information without physically going to Washington, D.C. And this goes for state government and everything else that's happening, too. There's um, even with corporations, these publicly traded corporations have to give you their financial information. If you're a stockholder, buy one dollar worth of stock and you can get it online. So it's like it's really easy to kind of look into their secrets now in a way that it wasn't that long ago. So there's a great awakening happening right now. 
in this country, but also all over the world. And as I've traveled the world, I've noticed that the corporatism, the laws being rigged by giant multinational companies in particular, is a global phenomenon. So we're not even alone when it comes to this happening in the United States. It's happening everywhere. And that's incredibly powerful to understand because there's a very small amount of people that are controlling that system and creating that system. As soon as the rest of us are able to wake up to what they're doing, we're able to do something about it. And conversations like this and podcasts and and being able to read things on the internet that you weren't before, primary sources. I mean, you don't even need people to regurgitate it for you anymore. You can read the documents yourself. This ability is going to change the world. We're just going through a very difficult process of information overload that I think we'll get used to over time. Do you ever think about running for a public office? Oh, I get that question all the time. Um, I am totally fine with putting my name on the ballot, but will I ever collect money? and play that game? Absolutely not. However, if this audience gets big enough, if I get to a Dan Carlin type level, wherever I'm living, will I pay the 2000 bucks or whatever it is to get my name on the ballot? Sure. I will volunteer. You know, I volunteer as tribute. I have no problem doing that. If people want to vote for me, like I'll go. And I would totally love to have these conversations on the floor of the house. In fact, I have weird daydreams about doing that type of thing. But I refuse to be the person that takes the bribes in order to go there and be like, oh, well, once I get there, I'll stop taking the bribes. It just doesn't work that way. So I would love to be the first person that gets in there without any money because that gives me power over everybody there who does, um, especially to go in there as like the people's mole and just be like, so I'm speaking right now to an empty house of representatives because everyone's across the street at the food bank or the phone banks. Like I would love to be able to expose that type of stuff. So would I go? Sure. Will I do it in the way that I'm expected to? It's yeah. interesting because after the last election we had a couple weeks ago where, you know, the turnout was really high. Uh, is Chris Matthews was on Bill Maher and he said, what one takeaway is, if you ever thought about running for office, now is the time. Because people are so frustrated with the status quo, he's like, uh, and, and he said, particularly women. Like, I mean, it's, you know, this is, this is the age, right? Where people, I think, you know, people are turning out. I think Trump has, the, the irony, tell me if this sounds right. So this is what I, kind of what I think ironically has happened. And you follow things, right? Like, and I, I'm politically, I try to be aware, but I mean, you, you really on the ground, your level followed the whole details. I think that ironically, Trump became a status quo candidate because even though he kind of got some people that voted for Sanders and Obama and wanted to shake things up, because A, he's just, he doesn't, I don't think he really likes being president other than going to sort of authoritarian states where they have swords. And I mean, he likes that. He likes the pomp and circumstance, but he's not really, he doesn't really get government, understand it that well, governing. And so he had to just put in establishment people, right? And because he, mm -hmm. he's also not the deal maker, he says he is, right? Like you see, even his own party has a tough time making deals. So ironically, the shakeup candidate really has left a DC pretty much the same as when Obama left office because substantive legislation can't be change. I mean, he's put in some some different sort of uh, people in heads of departments, but these are also people that uh, an establishment Republican who took all their money from the Koch brothers, Scott Pruitt, you know, when Scott Pruitt was appointed, right? Jeb Bush, who, you know, Jeb's the worst, low T, he's got low T and Jeb Bush, the Bushes can't stand Trump. Jeb, uh, Jeb Bush tweeted out, great choice for choice for EPA, my friend Scott Pruitt. So Jeb Bush, the good, the good, one of the good, you know, Bush, the upstanding, you know, oh, we, we need a guy like Jeb Bush. And I do think he's has a lot more character than someone like Donald Trump, but he would have picked Pruitt. Like, like he, yeah. he, he would have picked that guy. Well, yeah, because Donald Trump, I think we know who he is. 
I've, I watched The Apprentice. I'm always embarrassed to admit this, but I did watch that show. I liked the competition amongst the yeah, people like fun. doing good business ideas. It was a good show. I couldn't stand him. But after watching so many episodes of that, like you kind of know who he is. He's a blowhard. And he's not very serious when it comes to governing. You've acknowledged that. So I think what's happening is that Mike Pence is running this show. And the reason I think that is all the fossil fuel appointments, because there was no indication ever that Donald Trump was a stooge for fossil fuels. There are so many indications that Mike Pence I will is. send you. And so all yeah, these- I will send you this podcast. Terry Gross had this guy, this woman who wrote a long profile of him, I think for the New Yorker or something. She said exactly that. And Pence was a guy was not really kind of a, like, he was a lawyer, ran for Congress, did some dirty campaign tricks, felt kind of bad, d- dirty campaign financing, not illegal, but dirty, did, ran, felt bad running a negative campaign, was a lawyer that wasn't really successful, was a little kind of, you know, chintzy hack law practice. Then he got on radio and he was really good at radio. And then he got bankrolled by some kind of one of these think tanks that basically do template legislation for conservative issues like energy and things like this. And they, you know, they draft these bills, insert state here and then send them over to all the state houses. And like Alec, I forget which one it is, but it was one of those kind of think tanks that do the template that sort of. Okay. T- it was a great idea that conservatives had. Like, we'll just have a th- think tanks that push the legislation, sort of identical legislation out to the state houses. And we'll kind of, and Pence was, became yeah. the spokesman for that because he was good at talking. He, he fills the part. He looks a little like, like a smart, reflective elective official. And they said, this is, you know, that's part was part of the deal. Like, even though Trump's all oh, the cokes, the billionaires, everything, the, the establishment made sure Pence got in there. And then Pence was the transition staffing guy. And so, yeah, I mean, it, and she, mm-hmm. it's right. I will send you the, the interview and I'll put it in the show notes um, with Terry Gross, but it's, it's totally what happened. I mean, it's, it's a, so, so you have the cool. face of, and it's funny because Pence wouldn't have got reelected in Indiana. He was such a failed governor. There were signs, fire Pence. Because he wanted to, he wanted to run oh, for president, yeah. and, and his political team was like, "I don't even know that you can, we can get reelected in Indiana." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so he just like walks into the presidency by hitching himself to Donald Trump. Yeah, so I think that's exactly what's going on. I don't think it was all the fossil fuel picks. I mean, you heard the episode. I was just like, I don't understand it. This is crazy. I didn't see it coming. And now it makes Look at the education. Sense. Betsy Devos. I mean, they sort of, it's just the, you know, like, I mean, these, these are all people like, I mean, maybe the Republican, a better Republican might have picked a little bit of a smart, but I don't know. Cause that's a Pence kind of Midwest Christian. No, but her family, don't forget that her brother is Eric Prince of Blackwater. Ah, there we go. There so, we like, go. He, okay. Yeah. That family is incredibly rich. They're huge Republican donors. That's what that is. It's the money. And then the war contracting. I mean, Eric Prince has always had a relationship with the Republican Party, and he's been lately trying to convince the Trump administration to privatize the Afghanistan war. He's been everywhere just openly being like, you should privatize it. I mean, this guy has no shame whatsoever, and that's Betsy's brother. So, um, yeah, you just have to follow the money, and you'll figure out why everyone was appointed. They're either loyal to Trump or they're Pence picks that have been deeply connected to Republican campaigns for a very, very long time. So I could talk with you all day. Uh- <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, you, I mean, you, you really are just astute and you're fun to talk with. I mean, it's just very, you know, like I would, even if we we're in a podcast, you're somebody I just want to hang out and talk politics with. Could you just say like, <laughs> well, thank you. I enjoy talking to you. I'm too. Not, yeah. It's, you're just, you're great at this. I mean, that's why you have such a great audience and growing audience and, and you know, everybody, all my listeners, please subscribe to the congressional dish. It's, it's, it's just, it's great. But like, what, what do you, so we talked a little about public office also just like the podcast. I mean, is there what what do you hope to be doing over the next i mean over you know in the coming months years and also like how has the has your sense of 
vocation, calling, identity with the podcast changed in the Trump era? Was it different? Like, where are you going and has it become different since? Because everything seems different in the age of Trump for a lot of people. Was that a, a, a big thing for you or no? Yeah, um, I had a lot of trouble in the first few months of this administration with being attacked by people that were, well, quite frankly, by women. Um, because I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, which I was accused of being a traitor my gender, even though I voted for a woman, Jill Stein. <laughs> but the thing is, out of all of the episodes that I did, I only did two on the elections. I did one on the primaries, one on the general election. And I took so much flack for that. And I was blamed for Trump winning. And it was so much irrational so much irrational screaming from people that I just, I didn't see it coming. It happened in my personal life. It happened on the podcast. It's just, it was really, really hard to deal with. And I think we talked about this the last time we talked, but I think a lot of that is people in shock and not knowing how to handle it. So they, you know, they just react strongly. I've done it myself. When I first started paying attention to what was going on in the world and I found out everything was not what I thought it was, like I was difficult to be around and I get it. But I'm really struggling to have that aiming in my direction. And so what I'm finding with the podcast is I really want to take it in a more entertaining direction, like still factual. But like the last episode I did was really fun. I went to the comedy store with, do you know Matt Marr? He hosts, I don't, I don't. Yeah, he's a funny, funny comedian. He hosts the Dear Maddie show. He's a trained therapist and we've become friends. And so I, I picked three bills, like not important ones, just because it was an experiment with the structure. But I picked three bills and we went down into the comedy store basement in their podcast studio. And I did what I usually do with the clips and everything, but I did it with another person who was funny and we were joking around and it was so much more fun to do and it was lighthearted. And then I did a fact check after and I really enjoyed doing that. I really enjoyed having a conversation with other people where there were also times where he was able to ask me a question in the moment to just be like, hey, can you clarify what you just said there? And being able to get those questions in the moment, I think allows me to explain myself better because sometimes I'll say things when I'm just talking by myself that land wrong with other people, but I have no awareness of that. And so I definitely experienced that in the earlier, like around the election and after the inauguration where people were very upset with some things that I said that I never thought were controversial or mean in any way, but they were very, very pissed at me. And um, I just feel like having conversations about controversial things might help me deal with that. And then also make the podcast enjoyable for me again, because getting all that, that mean feedback and it, and I shouldn't say it was, it wasn't that much. It was just the feedback that came in and from some surprising people, especially in my personal life, it was like the few ones that really hit though. They hit hard, you know? So I just need to make this more fun. And I think it's going to be better for the audience too. I think it, I think if you're talking about something as supposedly dry as Congress, you know, I don't think the subject is dry at all, but watching hearings is generally not fun for people who aren't insane like me. And, and so to talk about this and to bring more people in, I also think it'll help the podcast to be like, oh, I'm a fan of Matt Marr and he did this thing that he enjoyed and it's about Congress. What the hell? I'll tune into that. So I think it'll also help the podcast like big picture. I don't know. It's just been a really, really hard for year for me and the podcast to the point that I was not sure I wanted to keep doing it, but I am going to keep doing it. It's gotten better. So yeah, yeah. Th that's, thanks for sharing. I mean, that's very honest and, and vulnerable. And I think it's probably because kind of the way you found your way into this, right. was sort of your story. I mean, you were watching 
you, you had people that were connected to the Iraq war. You live, you spent some time in Europe and you were, you're not somebody that I think a lot of the people that kind of do what you're doing, right. Are sort of bathed in the cable news culture. Right. Yeah. Uh, the play, and so it's almost like controversy and stuff like that. It's just, it, that, that's just the air you breathe. It's, it's why like, you know, there's recently a piece in the national review about why is there being, by being so hard on Megan Kelly, right? The liberal elite kind of thing. And they probably are a little harsh at times. And so, but also the thing is, Megan, you made a lot of money in the gladiatorial world of cable news. And now you want to go to day team, daytime TV and be sort of a new Oprah Ellen, but you, it's hard for people to shake that. And, and she still has some of those combative traits a little bit. And it's just, so, so someone that's kind of in that cable news gladiatorial thing or those kind of, they probably are prepped for some of this tribal vitriol, but that, that wasn't your life before you got into No, this. I've never been Regina George. I'm not a mean girl, you know, and I don't want to be one. And so that's the problem too, where it's like, I'm not looking for controversy. What I'm looking to do is have conversations about stuff that I find interesting, whether it's just me into other people's ears or with other human beings, I would like to do that more, but it's mainly just been me. But I want to talk about this stuff because nobody is, but I'm not looking for a fight and I never have been. So when the fight came to me, about the one issue that I tried so hard to avoid. I don't talk about campaigns. It's not my thing. I don't follow them. I don't do polls ever. You've never heard me talk about polls on my show, ever. And so to have that be the avalanche. And this is where you're really different than say, you're really different than say that 538 podcast, which I like, Nate Silver, and I, uh, that's very interesting. With the, on, But that's not your thing. You're interested I'm interested in, in what's happening, not predicting the future. And that's what the news has become in so many instances. It's people being like, well, this is what's going to happen. And just guessing where it's like, there's so much information that's actually happening in black and white. You can read it in a bill. You can watch it on C-SPAN. You can watch them crafting legislation. If you want to predict the future, do it by reading the bills that they're crafting right now. That's what I did the whole year with the healthcare stuff. And I was able to say like, this is specifically what they're doing. I find that so much more interesting. And that's what I was looking for in 2012 when I got this idea where it was like, I don't know how to get the information about what they're doing right now. I know there's interesting stuff because I've seen it myself. That's not getting covered anywhere. This is a hole that I can fill. And I just chose podcasting because I was the area, the, the barrier for entry was so low. So it's a democratic medium, man. I mean, really, I mean, it really, you can, you can get in and most of that, who's the guy that does the Rob. Libsyn podcast? Rob. Yeah. He, he, when I was listening to, he was kind of summarizing his podcast, maybe one of the, things he, he, the, the myths of podcasting. And he said, you know, if you look at the top 200 in iTunes, like almost 60% of the top 200 yeah. are indie podcasters. They're not big media, NPR, ESPN. I mean, so it really, the argument, oh, well, you, the podcast is really now dominated by big media. No, it's not yeah. actually. I mean, it's, you really can be an indie podcaster and be, and not just have a big audience. You could even have a top level audience. Yeah. And I don't even, I don't care how big my audience is. That's what I realized too. Cause, um, I don't know if you know, but the Libsyn stats, they changed how they calculated them. And on paper, my audience took a big hit, but it really didn't. It was always the same size. I just didn't know exactly how big it was. My audience is still quite large, but I, it, it's fine. You know, I'm not trying to get in the top 200 when Slate writes an article and I'm not in it. You're never going to hear me bitch about it. Cause it's like, I'm having the conversation that I want to have, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to find common ground. And I think that is one of the things that makes me different too. It's like, I'm always looking for what can we agree on? Like today on Twitter, there's this guy in Texas. We disagree on damn near everything, but we've been friends now on Twitter for five years. And we started talking about the Keystone pipeline bursting. 
And he keeps saying like climate change is nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so let's not talk about that. Can we agree that pollution is bad? And so all day we've been going back and forth on like, okay, we agree on this. Let's go from here. And we've been doing this with each other for years. And I love doing that type of thing. I love not looking at someone and being like, oh, you are this label. Therefore, I am against you. And let's fight. Like, it's so much more fun to make friends. Yeah. And I I tweeted something out the other day. I'm playing with this idea in my head because I think what's happening, it almost seems to me like we're at the same time becoming less ideological. I'm speaking generally and broadly. Like, obviously, this is a generalization, but less ideological and more tribal. And so you look at, say, our views on Russia. Democrats tended to not, uh, you know, like Republicans tend to be the people that, oh, Russia, we don't like the Cold War, we don't like the Russians. Democrats, not real in sense of that, right? Era, age of Trump, all of a sudden, Republicans, overnight, their views flip on um, on Russia. Republicans like Russia. Re- Democrats now are scared and hate Russia's the enemy, you know, it's, it, and they're paranoid about it. You look at the NFL. Generally, re- when you ask questions about the NFL, you know, do you like it? Republicans have tended to like it more than Democrats. Like, oh, football, it's, you know, it's bad for probably all sorts of reasons, like, oh, head injuries, this, corporate, whatever. But now, because of the Trump thing and the kneeling, Demo- Democrats are getting higher on the NFL, Republicans lower. But where are you getting this? Like, here's the thing. You're probably counting on polls. Who's taking these polls? What questions are they asking? Who are they calling? Right. I've never been called because I don't have a landline and neither do you. And those and are summer, people that are summer, called. So- some are better than others. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, I, I had a guy on the show, PRI, the head of PRI, Robert Jones, who they do kind of Pew stuff. And they, they're studying and they call hundreds of thousands of people. And, it's, and some aren't, though. I mean, some only call a few thousand. But I do think, though, in t- or look at evangelicals. Th- this is a PRI stat where I know they do evangelicals. When o- Obama was president, 70% of evangelicals polled said a president has to have a good sort of moral and spiritual um, character fiber to be president. When once Trump got the nomination, that switched seventy percent the other way. It's not that important. <laughs> like we're, mm-hmm. we're, so it's not. It's not. And again, these are generalizations, right? I'm speaking broadly. Yeah. Punk holes and every. But I, it seems like there's a trend where it's just team red or blue. Yeah. Like, and okay, well, team red. Now we're down in the NFL. That's what our team says. That's you know. And there's not. I kind of think thought about, well, it's like what you're saying. Well, let's get off this net. You're trying not, let's look at the whole framework, which is antiquated. And like mm-hmm. it, it, we're, we're, we're fighting over something. We're not actually thinking about the issue. Yeah. Cause I think good public policy is just allergic to ideology generally. Cause every, cause the, the, the more complex the issue, it, 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 they're not Republican or Democratic math or algorithms or uh, chemical levels in water or, or, uh, you know, like whatever your metric is, like these things, reality is more complex. And sometimes we use ideology to reduce our anxiety about the complexity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's basically what I'm seeing all the time with people that profess the ideology of the free market. I think they like the word free (laughs) and they like the idea of the market, but it's such a simple theory that all you have to do is deregulate and everything will be great. It's so easy to follow. And the rules are so simple that you don't even get into the issues that come along with it. You know, it's like we've kind of touched on it today. If you allow the private companies to do whatever they want with the internet, is my brother in the cornfields going to get the internet? Not if the companies don't make money from it. So do we just leave them out in the cold or does society have an obligation to care about rural people on a utility level? Do they get electricity? Do they get internet? Or is it their job to move to where the rest of us are? These are more complex questions that freeing the market can't fix. 
And that is one of the things I'm so concerned about in Congress is that we have a significant number of people that believe in that ideology and are governing based on it without actually ever having those debates. It's just deregulation's straight good all the time. And it's, yeah, it's disturbing. And you're right. There is tribalism. And that's, that's part of it. You know, this, this whole ideology and we prescribe to this theology and unless it fits in this box and we don't believe it, that exists. Where I get my hope from and the people that I'm trying to reach, and this is something I've kind of realized this year, but when you look at who voted in this last very important election, it was about a quarter Democrats, a quarter team Republican, and half of us are sitting on the sidelines. We outnumber them all. So, and and even people in that voted Democrat and Republican, even the people that are in those boxes are not perfectly in those boxes. So I'm looking at this giant chunk of us going, we're all sitting on the sidelines, not knowing what to do with this, but we can talk to each other. That's where my hope is. It's in the 50% that are watching Kardashians sitting on the sideline being like, I don't know what to do about this. So I'm just going to let other people decide. Maybe now we're getting so bad, <laughs> you know, with Donald Trump being president, that people are going to go, oh, wait, I kind of need to get involved now. And I've yeah, seen it in my yeah. own life. Like one of the people in my life that got me really, really upset was a friend of mine. She was very pissed at me for not voting for Hillary. And I found out three months after the fact she didn't even vote. And we got into like one of those conversations where I am crying and she is crying. And I was just like, how dare you come after me like that? And you didn't even vote. She didn't even, it didn't even occur to her that her vote, her vote mattered. And so it's like, we had that conversation. So where we're going from here is that she doesn't get to yell at me for things she's not informed about and she's going to vote. And we got somewhere in that conversation. You know, we hang out all the time. We're fine now, but it's, it's one of those things where I think that she's not alone in that, where she was just like, my vote doesn't matter. Why should I do it? And there's an awakening happening with the people that are the most upset where they're seeing their own role in the system in a way they never have before. They're going through what I did in 2003. It's funny. At the same time, the apathy and not voting and yet anger at you for not voting for who she liked. That's yeah. interesting. The same. But these are the things that are, you know, where I think politics is is doing unhealthy emotional work for people. I, I always think like, you know, if 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 your ideology is an idol, right, then you have to demonize the people that disagree with it. Like it, it, if your ideology does identity work, right, and or your tribalism does identity work, then you're just going to have to, if that's your sense of purpose, well, okay, I, I'm a good person because I like Hillary and I'm against Trump or and I'm for, I'm anti-gun or I'm for protecting. And, this, and then you just, you can't really see people as people. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're saying is, well, guess what? The vast majority in this country are, 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 are sitting at home because they're not rigidly ideological. And maybe if they started voting, we'd get more common sense candidates because these yeah. people are thoughtful, many of them, you know, like and, and actually can bring to the conversation a different sense of imagination because they're not as colored by the sort of red, blue team kind of talking point. Yeah. And we might also be able to break the stranglehold that these two parties have on our system. We don't have a two-party system. That's just a slogan that makes us think that you only have two options. It's not true. We had four people that legally had enough ballot access to win the presidency. So it wasn't between Trump and Hillary. It was between Trump, Hillary, Jill Stein, and Gary Johnson. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said, I didn't vote, but if I did, it was going to be for Gary Johnson. Or if I did, it was going to be for Jill Stein. So it's like, why the fuck didn't you show up and vote to at least show that these people do have support, that these parties have support, that we're not trying to do Democrat-Republican every single time. There was no harm in it, but they decided to not vote at all. So I'm, I'm also very hopeful that people that are sitting on the sidelines might jump in just to say, I'm 
sitting on the sidelines because neither of these parties represent me. That's how I feel every day. They really don't. All the things that I saw in the Democratic primary, like how messed up is it that the Republicans ran a more Democratic primary than the Democrats did? You know, that primary was it was unfair. No matter how you can call it rigged, you can call it unfair, but there were problems going on in that primary. And it's not just Bernie Sanders that got screwed. It was Martin O'Malley and everyone else who was up on that stage. It wasn't just Bernie. But it is frustrating to see that we've allowed these two private clubs that are largely run by corporations and very, very rich people to make Americans think that those are the only options that we have. And it's total bullshit. So I'm also trying just to reach people just to ask them to jump in and send a message to those two parties that they don't own us, you know? Jen, it's always great talking with you, and I'll have you back soon. And may your tribe increase. I mean, I, I really... And, and I think what you're saying is actually it's a probably a bigger tribe than we think it is. And some of what you're doing is connecting those people, which is a noble and, and you know, it's, it's a beautiful uh, thing you're doing. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Hey, I'll have you, I'll have you back soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Jen Briney for coming on the podcast. Check out her podcast, The Congressional Dish. It's in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.